Blog Talk Radio. Happy summer, everyone. I'm Gail Brandeis. I'm editor-in-chief of Tesferit Journal, and this is Tesferit Talk. I just got back from teaching at Antioch University, their low-residency MFA program, for 10 days. It's a 10-day residency filled with talking about writing, thinking about writing, breathing writing, seminars and workshops, and all sorts of wonderful discussion. Um, And it's so rich. I think, you know, we as writers tend to live such solitary lives. And so connecting with other writers can be so incredibly nourishing. And sometimes there's a bit of a letdown after these residencies where we have to, you know, just kind of readjust to our regular daily lives and the quiet of our desks. And so it's really lovely to be able to talk about writing today and, you know, keep that inspiration going after my time at Antioch. Today, I'm really thrilled to have William Kienauer with us. I have to say, I've been unfamiliar with his work until our esteemed producer, R.J. Jeffries, told me about it. And I immediately felt as if I had found a kindred spirit once I started reading Bill's work. He goes by Bill. His his name is William Kienauer on his book jacket. So I'm so grateful to R.J., uh, for that introduction. Bill's most recent book is Fearless Writing, How to Create Boldly and Write with Confidence. And it's such an inspiring, invigorating read. It's really just as much about living fearlessly as it is about writing fearlessly. So I think that you all will find it so rich and invigorating to your own writing. Um, In addition to this book, Bill's the editor of Author Magazine, and he hosts the popular Author to Author radio show. Um, He's written a lot. He has has books out, but I want to share a little passage from his book where he talks about all the things he's written. He writes that he's written books, plays, poems, screenplays, essays, songs, sonatas, and symphonies. He writes, I designed award-winning role-playing adventures and made short movies of my interviews with authors. Yet when I thought of my creativity, none of these things came to mind. I thought about the intersection of my curiosity and imagination from which those things were born. I love that. Just thinking of curiosity or thinking of creativity as the intersection of curiosity and imagination that rings so true for me. And I feel really lucky to be able to speak to Bill today about his own curiosity and imagination. So let's bring him on. Welcome, Bill. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Gail. Well, it's it's really a delight. And there's so much I can relate to in your book. I feel like our processes must be very similar, or they are, just yeah. from what you wrote. Yeah, and I just found it so refreshing to read how you wrote about openness and receptivity and curiosity and flow as as the heart of the writing practice. Yeah. And I was I was hoping that you could give our listeners just kind of a quick overview of your book and what inspired you to write it. Well, fearless writing is really um the way I describe it is it's not a how to write book. It's a how to get into the frame of mind so you can write book because um, writing is inherently fearless. Um, In other words, that flow state you just mentioned briefly, I've got a whole chapter in the book called The Flow. And any writer uh, who enjoys writing I think has entered that state at some point. And I always describe it as you, you sink into the dream of your writing, whatever you're writing about, whether it's a poem or a memoir mm-hmm. or an essay or a novel, whatever it is, 
But whatever you're writing about doesn't exist. You're writing about something that you can see only in your imagination. So you're having to sink into like a dream because that's where it's taking place. It's taking place in a realm only you can perceive. You sink into it. And when you do, if you allow yourself to sink into it completely, and I write a lot in this book about how to do that kind of or what keeps us from it. Mm -hmm. But if you sink into it, uh, it's a wonderful experience. You're... Uh, you lose track of time, you lose track of the world you're physically inhabiting at that moment, and you become far more aware of the world that you're writing about than your family or your children, your jobs, and how much you might love any of those things. This becomes that much uh, more important to you at that moment. And uh, when you're in that flow state, that that receptive state, um, things come to you. And uh, you don't have to go get them. And you are in a kind of collaborative experience between your, your curiosity, the thing you're interested in, your imagination, which seems to provide the answers to the questions, what should come next and what should I do? And so it's a great state to be in, but everyone who's written has had bad days of writing too, where things did not come easily and um, where <laughs> things did not, where they are, you are aware of the time and you are aware of what's going on outside your window and nothing seems to be coming to you. And the story that was so interesting yesterday is so boring today. And so <laughs> I said to myself, after having had these experiences for many years and sort of talked to a lot of writers and thought about it, I said, well, what's my role in this experience? What's my role in having a good day or a bad day of writing, of getting into the flow or not getting into the flow? And the thing I determined is um, – the number one indicator to what whether I have a good day or bad day is whether I how much time I spend asking the question, I wonder what other people think of my work. Because mm. if you're a writer, you're really an author, meaning you you want to share your work with other people. And you and the the number one fear for all writers is what other people think of their of my work is more important than what I think of my work. And that question what does someone else think about this will someone else like it is it any good is there a market that's all another way of saying i wonder what other people think of it takes you out of the flow immediately because you cannot answer the question how best should i tell this story what's the thing i'm most interested in what should happen next you can't answer those questions and also answer what do other people think of it will my critique group like it will my editor like it will my agent like it will the new york times like it whatever but because you're an author because you want to share your work with other people it is extremely tempting to wonder what will other people think of it especially if you've had the experience of people liking it and feeling really good when they like it or telling you it sucks or it needs to be totally rewritten and feeling really bad when they say that so the question of what other people think of your work is is, is on the minds of pretty much every writer I know uh, and some, on some level. And, um, and so this book is about – but we can't do our work. We can't do our work, Gail, unless we forget. And that flow state that I was describing is what life feels like when you forget to care what other people think about what you love. <laughs> you forget to care because you have to make yourself care. It's like mm-hmm. juggling balls. But once you forget to juggle that, wonder what other people think. I wonder, it's an active state, that wondering what other people think. Once you forget to do that and just sink into the thing you were meant to do, that's what it feels like. It feels effortless. It feels wonderful. And you're at your most creative, your most productive. And so the book is in many ways about how not to ask that question. But there are so many reasons, Gail, <laughs> to ask that stupid question over and over again. And so many times it seems practical and necessary, but it's not. It's, it's, it's the greatest obstruction and you know what's interesting, Gail, mm-hmm. this is true. You said something yeah. at, at the beginning of this about the book, which is absolutely accurate, which is it could have been of how to live fearlessly, uh, mm-hmm. which is initially what I was going to write, but then my agent convinced me to make it for writers because that's my platform, which is fine. <laughs> but I don't know. If, do you find yeah. this is true? So uh, to me, writing is a relationship with my imagination. But the worst thing I can do in a human relationship is think I know what other people are thinking. Every time I get into an mm-hmm. argument with someone, it's because, if, especially no matter how much I love them and how well I know them, in fact, every argument I've ever been in with my wife or my boys, who the people I spend the most time with, is because I think I know what they're thinking. Every time, and right. I'm always wrong, Gail. Does that make sense? <laughs> it makes perfect sense, and, and I agree completely. And I think that the book explores that so beautifully, and... Uh, you know, kind of letting go of expectation, letting go of, as you talked about, you know, desire for other people liking it and thinking into that process 
and being open to whatever comes, being receptive to it just as when we speak with our loved ones. If we come to them with openness and curiosity and make sure that we're listening with open ears and open heart instead of kind of projecting our own stuff onto them, it, yeah. it creates a much more um, satisfying and deep connection. And it's true. So, uh, yeah, all of these lessons in your book just relate so much to life. And being open yeah. to life, just being open to the surprises that life brings and going with the flow. And, um, yeah, I, I just I found it a really comforting read in a lot of ways and a very <laughs> empowering read in other ways. Great. And, yeah, I just so appreciate that. And you talked about how, um, how we shouldn't ask what other people think. And one thing that I really appreciated in the book was, instead of asking ourselves, is the work any good, asking if it's accurate. Yeah, and I think that's that was, such a great way of framing things because, yeah. yeah, that completely changes our relationship with the work and taking away judgment and just making sure that we're speaking as clearly as we can and that we have that's right. making sure all of our images are as accurate as they can be. And, and so that was something that I feel like I will use with my students, um, just reminding them to ask themselves, is this as accurate as it can be? So thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, you know, I don't when know I what, found that, Gail, it was so helpful to me. I found that language myself because mm-hmm. I used to always worry, is it any good, you know, because I wanted mm-hmm. to be a good writer. It seemed like a sin. <laughs> it Literally, it felt like a sin. <laughs> Thou shalt not be dull. Thou shalt not be unoriginal. You know, it didn't feel kind of like that until I realized that no one knew what good or bad was. I tell a story about this writer I know who got reviewed by two different papers, and they both quoted the exact same passage, and one called it good and one called it bad. And this was These were in major, mm-hmm. you know, Ameri- North American papers. But yeah, that is it accurate? Because is it any good? It's just code for what other people think of it. That's that's all that that right. question it's is code subjective. for. It's totally subjective, and you don't know, but you do know if what's on the page is accurate, you know, factually. But more importantly, is it accurate emotionally? So is it is what's on the page yeah. as cool as the story was when I thought of, it, or is moving as if I'm writing about mm-hmm. my own life, which is what I write about. If something, if I have an important mm-hmm. experience, I know it mattered to me. Like that's not up for debate. I, life showed me something when I had this experience. I learned something from that experience. Well, is that on mm-hmm. the page? Was I able to reflect what I learned on the page? And if I didn't, I go back and I do it again. But no one else can tell me if what I learned is on the page because only I know what that is. Right. And so I love. It's very important. I think I always say to my students that your imagination is totally loyal. And so if you ask it a question, it will answer it. If you say, mm-hmm. you know, how can I best describe that time uh, those boys chased me in, you know, elementary school? How, what's that? What did it, it, the imagination will take you back, and if you are open, it will answer the question how to do that. Or if you say, well, is my heroine, is she a waitress or an actress? I want, the, your imagination will answer it. But if you ask your imagination, mm-hmm. what if nobody likes this story? It'll say, oh, you want to see a world where nobody likes your story? I'll show you that, too, because I can show you anything. You know, I can show you flying bananas. I can show you kung fu pirates. Or I can show you a world, a dystopian science fiction, where nobody likes. So you have to be very disciplined about the questions you ask your imagination. And if you say to your imagination, is this any good? It's going to say, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I can't answer that. And that will be very disappointing because you want it to be good. You know, so right. we must be disciplined, Gail. And I appreciate We must that. be disciplined. <laughs> yes, and, you know, I, I love how you talk about how everything we tell ourselves is a story. So, so the anxieties yeah. and doubts that we have as writers are stories we tell ourselves as well, and we just have to look at what stories we want to tell and what yeah. questions we want to ask. I think, I think it's, it's very clarifying. Um, the way yeah. you frame that, and also focusing on feeling too. I, I think you know, as as writers, we tend to live in our heads a lot. We're we're always thinking about plot and various things. Yeah. But allowing ourselves to drop into what we're feeling and writing from that place can, you know, as you wrote in here, take you to that place where you're showing, not telling, and creating really vivid imagery, and. So I, I enjoyed the fact that you 
that you're trying to lead your readers back to that feeling place, not just the thinking place, but, but no. that deeper place. And, that... and actually, yes. you said oh, something please. interesting earlier. Yeah, you said we were talking about relationships, and you were talking about going to the people you love with an open heart and an open mind and listening. And and I think I talk about this in the book. In fact, I'm sure I do, about that writing is really more mm-hmm. listening, that it's almost never thinking. You're really listening. Yeah. Uh, you're yeah. asking a question and listening for the answer, you know. And um, mm-hmm. and feeling, I, writing taught me in a way, it's obvious now that I live from this point of view, but writing really taught me that the only valuable human currency is feeling, that what it, that mm-hmm. all we want is to feel good. That's the only thing we want, and everything we've ever done, any of us, is to feel good. We often are we're wrong <laughs> a lot of the times. You know, it doesn't work <laughs> out that way, and that's where good stories are told, but, but our goal is to feel good. You know, there's nobody on earth who would if I had gave them a choice between feeling bored and feeling excited or feeling loved and feeling shunned or feeling safe and feeling unsafe mm-hmm. would never choose, wouldn't choose safety and love and comfort and excitement. So we all want to feel good. And, yeah. and, and, and we all want effortlessness. And, and, and when we're writing, our job is to focus on what the scene feels like, you know, cause even fearless mm-hmm. writing, which is really I, one of the, another way I describe it is having unconditional love for your story. In other words, you love the story love or the poem or the essay, not because of what other people think of it or the, what kind of advance you'll get for it or any of the results, or because someone told you it was awesome. Also, you love it just because you love it. The way you love your newborn just the newborn hasn't done anything for you they can't Mm -hmm. praise you or thank you Mm -hmm. you love them because you love them because you love them and that's the way that's the ideal relationship to your stories you you love them you love the story uh because you love it well that's what fearless writing is about but even that gail is a felt knowledge in other words when i'm writing about unconditional love for my story I have to remember what it feels like to love it unconditionally and then describe that felt experience of the, mm-hmm. uh, of the story. And so even in a book yeah. like this, which is not a fictional story, it's still describing a feeling. Fearlessness is a feeling. Fear is a feeling. Effortlessness is a feeling. Effort, resistance is a feeling. It's all feeling. It's all feeling. Mm-hmm. And so... As writers, mm-hmm. that is your currency. You're, I, tell my, I teach a class called Marketing for Authors Who Hate to Market, or Fearless Marketing, I call it sometimes. <laughs> and I always remind my students, you are feeling merchants. You're selling feelings. That's all you're selling to people, mm-hmm. really. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, that brings us to the body, which I think, you know, as, as I mentioned, you know, as, as writers, we tend to live in our heads. And I, I yeah. also teach on writing from the body, and it's, it's all about that feeling place. Like, how does emotion register in the body? Um, you know, just take us into the characters or our own physical experience, so that the reader can slip into the skin of the people on the page and taste things and smell things and and feel the way you know fear makes the heart pound a little faster. Um, yeah. And so yeah, I, you know, it's I funny you say that. Appreciate that. The- I, I, one of the things I do is I interview people, and there's an interview with me and, and Andre Debuse, who wrote uh, House of Sand and Fog and Townie and mm-hmm. Garden of Last Days. And he's a wonderful writer, great teacher, and he was the first one I heard say, interestingly, Gail, he said, I learned to, when he, he, he learned to write when he learned to write with his body, not with his head. And he was the first one I heard mm-hmm. say that, and I thought, he's absolutely oh. right. You are writing with your body. Yeah. That's yeah. really what you're using more than anything Very else. much so. And you, you encourage, you talk about, I think, the guidance system that's within yeah. us and how, I, I, could you talk a little bit about creative discomfort? Because that was oh, a, a fresh yeah. approach to, um, to writing that I hadn't seen anyone. You know, it, it was sort of a, a new, new uh, framework and it well, resonated yeah. with me, even though I hadn't used those words before. Yeah, so but the yeah, contrast, it's, yeah, so it's sort of like contrast, and so I think I start. I think I talk to tell a story, and it's true. I, writers usually decide what they want to write in one of two ways. One way they might say, "Oh, I love Lord of the Rings. I want to write a book 
it's just it gives me the same feeling as Lord of the Rings. So a lot of it becomes not by emulating the stuff we love. Oh, I love Beethoven. I'd love to write a symphony. I love music that affects me like that. The other way people come to um, writing is by seeing stuff that they think is wrong. That's not the way you. Mm-hmm. That's not the way a romance should end. That's not the way a science fiction <laughs> should end. That's not, and and that's the other. And they really, it's pretty evenly split. And so. It's, it's important to understand that as you're going about the world, you have a guidance system, and it can only speak to you in one of two, really kind of, it's kind of binary. So it has just one or two signals. It's either effort or effortlessness, right? So the only way you know you mm-hmm. put the right word on the page is this, it has a feeling of effortlessness. It just fits as the way a, a puzzle piece fits into the puzzle. And you know the story's mm-hmm. going in the wrong direction, the poem's going in the wrong direction, the word is in the right word, if there's a sense of effort. And so the only way to know if, if the right story, what the right story is for you is when you um, feel the resistance of uh, trying to force a word where it doesn't belong. But your guidance system is speaking to you all the time. So every time you see something and you're upset by it and you don't like it, that is your guidance system saying, look at the opposite of it. Look at the opposite of it. Look at the opposite of it because that's what you want. Sometimes the only way to know what you want is to see something you don't want. And in fact, that's sometimes mm-hmm. the best way to know what you want. And, and YouTube is filled with people saying, I don't want this, and I'm not going to create my own thing. I'm just going to tell you to make something different. <laughs> you know, the comments page are filled with people who aren't making anything, who want to make stuff, but are just seeing stuff they don't like. And for years, I would read books and complain bitterly about them. They were doing it all wrong. I was getting so mad. It was because I wasn't writing the books I wanted to write or the essays I wanted Mm -hmm. to write. Mm -hmm. And so I would just get frustrated with what I was seeing. But that was my guidance system saying, so what's on the other side of it? What should it be? What should it be instead? What should it be instead? And it's important to understand because I think it's easy to misinterpret the discomfort that is our guidance system. It's our guidance system speaking to us in effort, in discomfort, when you're trying to make, make a creative choice that isn't right for you. Strangely, it's easy to take – I know it was true for me, and I think it's true for a lot of people – to see it as failure in a way. In other words, that discomfort is a sign that something is wrong, and often that you're doing something wrong or that you're not good enough, and that, and that the, and that the um, – and that the resistance you feel is a sign of you just not being strong enough or clever enough or willing to work hard enough, when in fact it's just your guidance system saying not that way, not that way. And more importantly, mm-hmm. if you start thinking, if you're reading your work and you start thinking, uh, I wonder what other people think about it, I wonder if it's any good, what if there's no market for it, what if this is a waste of time, you will be depressed Every single time you think that, because your guidance <laughs> system will speak to you then too, saying, I, right. I can't tell you not to think those questions, but I can make you feel bad every time you do. And that is how you know those are questions you shouldn't ask, because I call them death questions because you'll be dead before they're ever answered. You can't answer them, mm-hmm. but they will drain you of enthusiasm for your work. And that feeling of hopelessness is, believe it or not, your loving, patient, loyal guidance system saying, Knock it off. Knock it off. Don't ask that question. It's no good to you. Come back to the light. Come back to the light. And if you keep asking it, I'll just let you feel worse and worse and worse until one day you'll think about killing yourself, and then you realize, oh, I just want to feel so good I'm willing to kill myself. Maybe I should try thinking something else instead. I really think it's part of the reason so many artists have that kind of odd relationship to suicide, where we hear that is because we are trying to understand this guidance system. And it makes us feel mm-hmm. so bad because it's trying to get us to feel so good. And it oh, can only speak to us. And it only has so two things it can give us. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And thank you for that. It's it's really you're welcome. Yeah, it's not just just such a, a fresh way of looking at things, and I, it's it's something that I will remember and integrate just into my own writing practice and my teaching and. So thank you for that. You mentioned You're complaining, welcome. how you used to complain. And you <laughs> yeah. have a, a part in your book where you, where you suggest trying not complaining for a day. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and I really Did you try it? that. And could, um, you know, I'm not much of a complainer, so I don't feel like I necessarily had to practice that. But I would like to, to try it and just be very aware of whether I am complaining. No, you don't but seem like a complainer, I have to admit. You don't seem like <laughs> yeah, a complainer. Yeah, I'm not. I, I, 
I tend to to look for the bright side of things, maybe to a fault to some extent. Um, right. But uh, but I, I do know a lot of people who that could help, and, and maybe you could talk a bit about that and why why you think that's a good suggestion. Well, it, it goes back to what we were just talking about, Gail, which is the which is the creative discomfort. So complaint is a way of saying mm-hmm. I don't like that. In other words. Uh, Something's happening. I don't like it. It's your recognition that you see something that is not – so when you write, the page is blank, right? You start with the blank page. Your page is as mm-hmm. blank as my page, is as blank as Shakespeare's page or Emily Dickinson's page. Right? All our pages are blank. And so you get to decide what's on it. You get to pick what – you can write a, You can write an epic poem about butterflies. You can write a tender coming-of-age a novel, or you can write a book about fearless writing. It's up to, you know, it's anything, anything is acceptable. And so you've got to figure out what goes on there. And a lot of times we see things in our life, or we see things around us, and we don't, we don't like them. And that's great. That's recognition of something. Just like when you, you're on your, if you're writing along and you write a sentence and it doesn't work, you can sit and complain about the sentence. You can say, why is it there? I can't believe I wrote it. It's so wrong that the sentence is there. Or you can just remove it. Now, in life, of course, if you read a passage in a book, you can't do that. It's, it's printed into that book and shall be into perpetuity. But complaining about it only keeps you focused on the thing you don't want. The question you should ask is, what's on the other side of it? Instead of saying, that's wrong, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be, because it is, and there's nothing you can do about it, say, well, what is it I would prefer instead? Where do I want to go? I don't want to be here, but where would I like to be? I don't want to be with this person, but who do I want to be? I'm not writing. I don't like writing this story. What story do I want to write? The, mm-hmm. Life is lived in yeses. Noes exist just to help us guide us towards the yes, but life is lived towards the yes. What do you want? What you don't want is necessary, but when you go to a bookstore and pick out a book, technically you rejected all the other thousands of books in that bookstore. But, of course, you didn't. You didn't run around saying, no, 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 no. You didn't sit there looking at a book saying, I don't want this book. I don't want this book. I don't want this book. Why is this book here? I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. No, you go find the book you do want. Same is true in the rest of our lives. We don't want to focus on if you see something you don't like, fine, but then quickly move on to the thing you do want as quickly as possible. And by speaking about the thing you don't want, you just create energy around it. It's like you're tell you're literally it's like you're picking up a book you don't like and making yourself read it. It's this complaint mm-hmm. is just mm-hmm. that. But I think that people complain because they see it as they have memory of it serving as motivation to get them off their butts and finally do something kind of. You know? Mm-hmm. And it, it's true. There's always that moment when we finally realize we're sick of this relationship, we're sick of this job. We're sick of this house. Where you finally recognize you're not enjoying an experience you've been allowing yourself to have for a while, and in, and often that mm-hmm. moment of finally realizing these shoes I've been wearing for the last year don't fit, or this person insults me every single day I spend with them. I don't like that. I would mm-hmm. like to change. And mm-hmm. so usually we begin by complaining and raging against this experience that we've been allowing ourselves to have before we then go and do the thing we want to do. But in creativity, you can't. It's all about what you say yes to, not what you're saying no to. You must find what you say yes to. You have. It's so much more, such so much braver to say yes to something, than to say no and yeah. to no and to no. You know. I love Interestingly, that. Actually, not to my... get, I'm not going to get political, but it was the what we see is happening at this moment is there was one of the parties was saying no for a very long time, and they found it very interesting. And suddenly they have all the power, and they have to say yes, and that's not so easy. It's much easier just to say no to what other people are doing than to say yes to what you're doing. And that's what's happening even in our political system right now. Yes. Uh, yeah, very much so. And it's one of so my easy. novels, Self Storage, has the word yes at the core where my character finds just the word yes written inside a box and it leads her on a journey to discover what makes her say yes in her own life. And yes is a word I love so much. And so I, I love <laughs> How are you using it there? Creativity is all about yes and it where is. that yes leads us and to the surprising places it will lead us to. And one thing you talk about, um, just speaking of surprise, is how the first, um, I think you said the first rule of staying in flow is uh, being um, willing to be surprised. And yeah, you got to be su- that yeah. That's 
Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of the writing process is when it yeah. takes on a life of its own and, yeah, just, um, yeah, it leads to a, a place I never had expected. And I wonder if there's a moment in your own work you'd like to share where you were surprised um, by your own creativity. Well, actually, it's interesting you mentioned it. So I'm, I, I, I get, I'm surprised all the time, and I've learned I write a lot of these uh, blogs for Author Magazine, they're little 400-word essays, and oftentimes I have the kind of the idea in my head. I can, you know, 400 words is relatively short, and I often have it kind of quickly laid out in my head. I think, oh, I'll write about X, Y, and Z, and that'll be a blog. But I've learned in that little format, I have to leave room for the surprise. And so I say, yeah, I think I'm going to write about um, the difference between feeling curious and, and feeling bored. And, and I have a couple examples of that in my head. But I make sure when I go to the page that if I write a sentence that I hadn't predicted that I wouldn't have thought of while, while I was imagining the piece in my, in, in my imagination, or I was just picturing writing the piece, and that new sentence has heat, and it's surprising. Mm-hmm. I let myself follow it. But actually, Gail, it was this book uh-huh. is one of the best examples because uh, when I had initially written the first draft of it, which was going to be a book for people who aren't writers, and this is how you can use the tools okay. that writers do to live the life you want to lead, I thought, well, I've been hmm. teaching this stuff and talking to people about it. I'll basically transcribe in a way, the lessons I've given for the couple of years around at writers' conferences and wherever. So I saw it almost as like I'll just, you know, I've, the notes are all in my head. I'll just type the stories I've told and type the lessons I've given. It's a little addition. But I did that for a couple of days mm-hmm. and found I was very bored. And I wasn't oh, interested in the piece. But I didn't think I had any more to say. You know, I thought I had kind of like figured it out. And I said, I, well, uh-huh. if, even if I have figured it out, I can't write it that way. So I've got to go in and write mm-hmm. about these subjects like the flow or the intentional arc or listening as if it's the first time I've ever done it. And I've got to be open to discovery. And lo and behold, as soon as I set that intention, I found new stuff. And so there's a lot of new stuff in this book. There's a lot of stuff I'd written about and talked about and taught about, but there was a lot of new stuff that came because I set my – intention to be and really it's like teaching a class i teach a a workshop Mm -hmm. called fearless writing and i deal with the same sort of stuff each time but every class is different Mm -hmm. new stuff comes each time because i'm different each time and 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 the Mm -hmm. world is different and life is different and the room is different and the people are different and if i respond to what's present something new comes and that's exciting that's and and it feels good you know why i feel the surprise feels good Gail, I think, A, it means I'm not responsible for everything, right? Something else mm-hmm. is – if I can't – it's like I can't tickle myself. Something else has got to tickle me. So <laughs> somehow I'm in relation, so I need that. So that's great. I ask the question, something else answers it. But also <laughs> that surprise to go deeper is a reflection of that you are in alignment with life and who you actually are. I believe that yeah. that yeah. that sort of deliberate surprise that putting yourself into alignment with with helpful surprises is what life is is at its core and when you put yourself into that mm-hmm. alignment that those surprises are the signal that you're letting through the stuff that's always wanting to come through yeah Oh, that resonates with me so much. It's, it's very much my own experience. And you, yeah. you mentioned the intentional arc just now. Yeah. And that was another thing I found really fresh in this book, how you talk about the three-story arcs. I think it was the yeah. physical, the emotional, and the intentional. Could you that's, tell that's our it. listeners about those three arcs, please? Yeah, so the physical arc is what happens in your story. Every single, single thing that happens, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl boy gets girl back it's everything the boy and girl say and do and everything the they meet every person they meet what they say and do so that is what happens and that's the least important arc in your story because everybody doing things are people and people only do things <laughs> because of motivation and so the second arc is the emotional arc, and that is why are they doing what they're doing? So maybe the boy gets the girl, but maybe he tells her a little lie. Maybe he tells her that he's an executive at a record 
company and not in the mailroom, you know, and maybe because he just <laughs> thinks she's so gorgeous and so cool and so interesting and she'd never be interested in me. And maybe she's always wanted to be with a guy who's something special and she always ends up with the ordinary guy. And so she believes this. Anyway, so then she learns the truth and dumps him and, oh, he's distraught and she's distraught. And then he tells the truth in the end, and he says, I just thought you were so awesome. That's why I told this lie, and they decide to come together. And so that's my little love story. And so, uh, so that's why do the people do what they do? Why are they doing? What is it that they want? The emotional arc is a very important part of any story because stories are about what people think they need to be happy and don't have. What is the problem? What do they need to solve? Do they need to throw the ring into the crack of doom, or do they need to get their father's <laughs> approval, or do they need to learn how to cast it? What do they need to be happy? Kill the killer, convict <laughs> the killer. What do they need to be happy? And, and, whether, and how do they need to change? Because I teach a lot of memoir writing, and often the emotional arc in the, for the memoirist is teaching us why. They know, the, the writers know what they did, but why did they do it? Why did they believe that was the right? What did they think was wrong? Why were they angry? Why were they happy? Sometimes the father will leave the mother, you know, the drunken father will leave the mom, and the three kids will all have different reactions. Three children of the same parents all have different reactions. Teach me, I always tell my memoir students, why you felt the way you felt, because not everybody would have felt that way. Mm -hmm. That's the emotional arc. Why mm -hmm. did you feel that? You, why did you do what you did? But even that arc, the emotional arc, is not as important as the third arc, which is the intentional arc, which is why you told the story. Why are you telling the story? And the easiest way I have to understand the intentional arc is the difference between one thing and another. So, for instance, in my little love story that I described, that might be about love thyself. Love yourself for who you are, which is a, a cliche, but it's true. Everybody's got to learn it. So, and, I would, and, and if I were writing that story, I would think about the difference between thinking I'm not good enough and knowing I'm good enough just as I am. And that at core mm -hmm. would be... What this, and you know what the perfect example of intentional arc is? This is my favorite example. Have you ever seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire? Yes. Okay. So uh, yeah, for those, probably a lot of our listeners have, but this is a perfect example of, of um, intentional arc. And by the way, when your readers read your novel, even if they love it, they will remember very little of it. But if you had a clear and beautiful and, and a, an intentional arc that you were really you believed in and was authentic to you, they will remember that. And here's a perfect example. My wife and I watched Slumdog Millionaire, which is about this young man who who wins a million dollars and and um, is on the Indian uh, who wants to be a millionaire. And his life, his odd. Um, uh, slumdog life in, in, in intense poverty in India gave him all the answers he needed to, to I'm ruining it for our listeners who haven't seen the movie, but too bad, uh, <laughs> to be able to answer this, this question and, and be with the woman he loved. That's in short. Mm -hmm. So we saw this movie, and I loved the movie. And I what I remembered about it was the feeling of love and meaning and then this great Bollywood dance scene they do on the train tracks at the end of the mm -hmm. film that just seemed to summarize what the, that's all I remembered. And then I had this very, very faint memory of darkness, but very little. All I could see mm -hmm. was the dancing and the music and the feeling of love. And then my son, my younger son wanted to see the movie too. So we all sat down to watch it again. It had been three years or something. And the first scene is the kid being tortured in a police station. And the movie is mm. filled with darkness, with, with <laughs> suffering and poverty and deprivation and abuse. But that's not what I remembered. I remembered mm. the love and the dancing because that's what the intentional arc was. The intentional arc of that movie was your oh, life okay. matters. And that's what I remembered. That's and good. so all that other stuff I forgot. But I needed it to tell the story. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I remembered the love. And so what is your story about? What is the gift you're trying to share? The difference between having a voice and having no voice, being valueless and being valuable. The difference between one mm -hmm. thing and another. I talk, you know, it's like that creative, the contrast. We, see, we understand something best when contrasted against its opposite. You know, it's easier to see a flashlight in the darkness mm -hmm. than in the middle of the day. And so whatever you're trying to show... You want to show it against its opposite. If you want to write about, I often will work with women who are writing memoirs, and often they want to write about strength, which is great. But I always say to them, you better show me your weakness. When you thought you were weak, show me when you thought you were weak, because that's when that, that strength will really mean something to me. 
Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it's, it makes perfect sense. And it's interesting because I was going to, to bring this up. Um, you know, you teach fearless writing. I've taught a class called Brave Writing. And in my brave writing <laughs> class, it's it's had a you know, it had a you know kind of different focus than than the fearless writing where it was more about um, breaking silences and yeah. giving voice to the stories that we've kept inside of us and, for, sure. it, and it was all about vulnerability, just being able yeah. to be vulnerable on the page and how that is our greatest strength. And so I, I totally, totally resonate with that. And, and where do you see that kind of bravery in, in the fearless writing practice? Where does vulnerability fit in for you? Oh, vulnerability. Well, you know what? One of my favorite mm-hmm. quotes is, and I'm not sure how I'm going to connect this, but I know they're connected, which is, in my defenselessness, my safety lies. And I think that that mm-hmm. is true, that your awareness that, you, that what you are is invulnerable. That what you actually are mm-hmm. is vulnerable, and when we write, when we're mm-hmm. being vulnerable on the page, that means we're going to write about something that we believe that we feared, if it, if shared, would open us to something, to some threat, whether it's mm-hmm. criticism, or shame. Shame, I think, is a big one. And mm-hmm. in writing it, you learn that all that that all is well. That that there are no wolves and that you did nothing wrong mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. if you just tell the truth, you're always safe. You're always safe. You can't be harmed. And I think that that's where that's, you know, one of the lessons I had to learn as a writer was the truth is enough. The truth is always mm-hmm. enough. It's always powerful enough. It's always meaningful enough. And sometimes when I would write my own, about my own life, I would sometimes try to protect myself you know, I would try to shave the story to make myself come out, look, maybe I would be concerned about what the, or I should say, I would just become concerned about what the reader would think of me. And I could never write the scenes that way. But when I allowed myself to just say what happened and how I honestly felt at that moment, the scene always worked and I was always okay. I was always okay. And you know what's interesting? Uh, I wrote a piece it was published in the New York Times called No One is Broken, um, An Autistic Son's Lesson to His Father, No One is Broken. Uh, was, mm-hmm. I think it was called No One is Broken, An Autistic Son's Lesson to His Father. It was about a relationship with my son and some things we did. And now working with him taught me how to have relationships with my wife and really become a success. That this concept of mm-hmm. or become successful as a writer finally after many years of, of not publishing anything. This view that there's no one is broken. And, you know, I kind of mm-hmm. laid my heart out there on the page in the New York Times. And uh, uh-huh. the response was great. But one person on, in the, they had the comment section in the Times said, you know, it's great that you could love your clearly unlovable son, was the quote. Oh, and, you know, that's about as, as cutting a, a response to this piece I'd, as I could imagine. But in mm-hmm. reading it, I understood that that had nothing to do with me but to do with what right. that person was going through. Did they feel loved? Probably mm-hmm. not. Because they're always reading about, a, writing is always a mirror. And, I th- and that piece, yeah. that response, his response, almost more than any other, was what taught me that I had nothing to worry about. Because mm. every reader is always seeing themselves in what you write. You know, They're always... Yeah. Actually, and here's the one, actually, let me offer one thing to your listeners if they write about their own lives. Please. This might actually help, I think, Please. which is this is something I learned is that the first time I wrote a story about my own myself um, from my own life, I'd always told stories all my life. I love telling stories, but the people I told them to were always people I knew in some way, even casually. And mm-hmm. as soon as somebody knows you casually, the way you tell the story changes because you can alter it ever so slightly to that person and what they know about you and right. what you know about them. But when I was writing for the first time when I wrote a story from my life, because I came from fiction, fiction, poetry, theater background, where it's never about mm-hmm. me specifically. But this was a story about me. Mm-hmm. I asked myself this question. I thought, why would someone want to read the story if they don't know me? And they'll never meet me. Mm-hmm. Why would they care? And that's when my life became about something else. It became material, mm-hmm. meaning how can mm-hmm. I use this story to be in service to other people? It's not about me anymore. It's about what life taught me. And that guy on the page is a character named Bill. He's not me. 
but he's a character who mm-hmm. went through this. And I'm going to tell the story, not – I'm going to tell it to help others. I'm going to tell it in service to life. And that changed my relationship to storytelling and, in a way, to my own life, hmm. if you can imagine. Well, that's beautiful. And, that, yeah, that, that is very helpful for me. My first memoir is coming out this fall. And oh, congrats. It's, you know, it's a very – oh, thank you. It's a very um, – very deeply personal memoirs, as memoirs yep. are. It's about my mother's yep. suicide. And so I've been feeling a lot of fear about putting it out into the world, but the thing that, that takes that fear away is just remembering that it's about connection and finding those readers who need to read the book, as I needed to find That's books right. after my mom's death and hungrily That's reached right. for other stories of suicide loss that helped me feel less alone. And as I was writing the book, it really was, you know, for me, uh, just kind of processing things and, and, um, you know, it was a very cathartic and healing experience. But once I got into the revision process, I remembered, okay, this isn't about me anymore. This is about the reader and what the reader will get from this, what I can give to the reader about this experience and what connections can I make. And, and, you know, just hoping that I find those people who who need to hear someone else survive such an experience. Well, that is the absolutely uh-huh. correct point of view, I think. And I think you will also find it will be very moving for you, Gail, when you go out and, and share this work with reading public because you will realize that as they read your book, they're reading about themselves. That's what they always do. They become, mm-hmm. You become them. They become you. They're always reading about their own life. Your life becomes their life. It's not even your story anymore. It's their story. And you mm-hmm. and the idea that you, you know, my work changed when I realized if I wrote myself to a good place, so I would write my little blogs, and I would always want to write with the idea that everything's okay, even though it looks like everything's not okay. Everything's okay, even when it looks like everything's not okay. Mm-hmm. That's the feeling I want to write about. And mm-hmm. I would write myself to that place every day. And, and I would finish my piece, and I'd think, well, I feel better. I feel good. I guess that's a win. And then I'd send it off, and people would say, oh, I feel good too. And I thought, well, that's an interesting thing. If I can, make my, if mm-hmm. I can write myself to a good-feeling place, it helps others. That's easy. I can do that. Yeah. And so yeah. And in helping yourself, really you'll help others. And that's really what this process was for me. Yeah, just – in writing, I was able to write my way from anger to compassion, and anger at her. I don't know. Anger at her. Yeah. Or yeah. just life. Um, yeah, about about her. She the suicide happened a week after I gave birth to my youngest child, and oh, so wow. Okay. It was you know I was in such a vulnerable place already, and and yeah. so I. Yeah, I was I was of course very upset with her, and no. It and was, what's it going to be called? It was a complicated grief. It's called the Art of Misdiagnosis: Surviving My Mother's okay. Suicide. Um, yeah. It'll it'll come out in November, and um, and so the writing helped take me to that place where where I was in a much better place. And if I hadn't had that writing, maybe eventually I would have gotten there. But I think that the writing just helped me. It it gave me a direct line there, which yeah, I'm so grateful for. And yeah, I don't I think love, you can um, write that kind of book and not have – I don't think you can successfully write that kind of book unless you have the experience you're describing. I think you have to – I think it, 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 it succeeds, quote-unquote, because you have that shift occurs, because that catharsis occurs. Mm-hmm. It's the yeah. best, yeah. cheapest therapy in the world in my mind. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and you know, we were talking about vulnerability and um, – I don't know if you've seen Brene Brown's TED Talk about vulnerability, but there's, no, I, I there's haven't, so much but I'm, fam- I'm familiar with it. But I'm familiar with it. Yeah, one of, there's one quote that has really stayed with me, where she talks about the early definition of courage was to tell your story with all your heart, because you know, core yep. means heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that when we do that, when we have the courage to tell our story with all our heart, it it does take us to that open-hearted place and that place where, yeah. you know, we don't have anything to hide anymore, where we, we can let go of shame, we can let go of... Well, you know what I think is interesting? 
I, I love that that description. Tell the story with all your heart. And I think that when I'm speaking, I want to think I love to speak to groups and teach workshops, and I'll just give like talks, you know, like a keynote type thing. And mm-hmm. and of course, I love to write, and I feel the very similar experiences. And for me, I've realized that whether I'm talking in front of people or or writing, I have to become. And the only word that makes sense for me is transparent. I have to kind of go away. Mm-hmm. And and and, yeah. and it would seem yeah. like your heart. You would you know you might picture this great beautiful red beating heart, but to me it's like I become. I just want to be a channel, and get out of the yeah, way exactly. and forget about yeah. Bill. He doesn't exist. He, that's uh-huh. made up. You know he's a character, yeah, yeah. but I want to let something through that yeah. I just and I and I have to get out of the way. And if I start thinking about the audience and I start. Even mm-hmm. one moment, it's like I shut the door on that thing I'm letting through. And so you kind of are vulnerable yeah. because our personalities, mm-hmm. Gail, are like little protections in the world. You know, they're mm-hmm. little devices we use to deal with. Maybe we developed them with our parents or with our neighborhood or our community or our church or whatever, you, wherever you grew up. And So they do become, I think, to some degree, protective devices to deal with the world, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah, I always yeah. want to write as cl- as openly and with as little of Bill. <laughs> I want my voice, mm-hmm, but I want mm-hmm. as little of my personality in that way as possible. I want it just as yeah. open as I can possibly be. You know, that's that's what I often tell my students as well, just that my, my biggest goal as a writer is to get out of my own way and to let yeah. the stuff flow through. And that leads me yeah. to, I just... Um, I'm curious, I would love to hear what your definition of confidence is, because the word confidence is a very important one in this book. It's even in your subtitle. And before reading your book, I think that my vision of confidence had been one I was uncomfortable with, where it felt like, you know, a a white man in a suit kind of storming into a boardroom and being (laughs) aggressive and confident. So, So the word confidence felt connected to arrogance to me, but... In this book, sure. that's not at all the definition of confidence no. because what you're talking about is very much not about ego. It's about stepping out of your own way and trusting yeah. what comes through. And so I'd love to hear just how you define confidence. Well, it's funny. I, how I, I don't think I ever actually define it. So I, I feel I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do it in a quick way, but I think that okay. so confidence to me is a natural state of being. It is a natural mm-hmm. state of being. It is saying it is your imagine my imagination is enough my curiosity is enough my intelligence is enough to tell any story i want to tell and simply the act of writing the act of putting one thing on the page that you leave there simply because it's what you want to see there it is an accurate expression of the thing that interests you most just that one Act is what self-acceptance is. You are accepting mm-hmm. that you're enough, and that is yes. confidence. That's saying, I don't need to be more than this. And so we, the mm-hmm. description you, you, you gave of a guy, there's it, a reason for that, because at its best, the person coming into the room with a suit or whatever is saying, I'm enough, I'm good enough. Uh-huh. And it's, it can uh-huh. easily become, I, I can only be good enough if I'm better than you. But the truth is, everybody is born with confidence. It's your natural state of being. And your job is to rest in it. And I think the best metaphor for resting in your confidence is balance. It's like balance. You keep finding it and mm-hmm. finding it and finding it and finding it. You know, confidence comes from yeah. confide to confide. Mm-hmm. And so it's something intimate and close to you that you're sharing with others. I'm going to share you with mm-hmm. you. I'm going to share mm-hmm. my confidence with you. I'm going to take you into my confidence. And I think that that is applicable because you're writing something mm-hmm. that is that is an expression of what you're interested in and you can't not be interested in what you're interested in. It's, there's nothing you can do about mm-hmm. it. You can't turn it off. You can try to clamp it down or choke it off or scold it but it's going to keep going. It's like a river flowing. And um, Mm -hmm. when you accept that and you rest in that inherent interest, that inherent curiosity, you're in your confidence. 
And it's such a relax and, and truly com- people who are in their confidence like that are so great to be around because they don't need you to do anything different. You can be in right. your confidence too. And it's not a threat to them. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not, yeah. it's not a threat yeah. because they've got everything they need. It's balance. Mm-hmm. Yes. Balance, well, that's Gail. Beautiful. Thank you. And yeah, You're and you just you mentioned self acceptance and you have a great line and I, I'm just paraphrasing here where you talk about the first step toward publishing acceptance is self acceptance. Yeah. That you need yeah, to have is. that self acceptance before you know, before you can be um a writer in the world. Who's I think so. There. Yeah. Okay, it, I see that our esteemed producer, um, <laughs> uh, RJ, um, would like to ask a question. Oh, excellent. Thank you, Gil. I don't know the esteemed. I just had to sit up straighter in my chair. Thank you. So, so kind of. <laughs> yeah, um, I want to, yes, thank you for the opportunity. Bill and I go back a while, and we yeah. work Fearless Writing Masterclass broadcast together. Yeah. And I love them, and thank right. you, Bill. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you. To do that. One time Bill asked me, he said, RJ, what to you is the opposite of fear? And I know I remember tossing back an off-the-cuff answer like, oh, it's courage or something like that. Your response to what is the opposite mm-hmm. what stopped me in, the, in my tracks, Bill, was love. Yeah. Please expand on that. Your answer mm-hmm. then still resonates with me today. Yeah, love is – well, and, and really, in truth, do you know the Emily Dickinson quote? That love is all there is is all we know of love, and I, mm-hmm. I have come to understand that more deeply through the writing of this book and the work I've done. In that, there's light and there's shadow, and fear is love is light, and fear is just the shadow, which is the absence of love. What life feels like when there's mm-hmm. the absence of love, and another way I think of love is the movement towards. This is the interesting thing about love and fear why they seem they can often be sometimes be mistaken for one another but love is the movement mm-hmm. towards something fear is the movement mm-hmm. away from something both are movement oh, but love great. is saying that's interesting to me i want that i want to be with that person i want to write that story oh i love that book i want to read it oh i love that song i want to hear it again that's the movement towards it's creative mm-hmm. fear is also movement oh god i hate the city i'm out of here oh i hate this person <laughs> i'm out of here oh i hate this oh, this person's elected. Go away, all of you people who go away. So it's the destructive, but it's just I don't want this. It's not saying what you do want. So it's a movement, mm-hmm. but just a running mm-hmm. away from. And but both yeah, are movement. Yeah, a contraction instead of an expansion. Exactly. So, they're, but they're both movement, and fear can get you moving, but you end up. You often don't know where you're going. Just anywhere, but you know, anywhere, right. anywhere that's away from here, kind of. And so, love <laughs> is the movement towards. And love is, and to to to. To spot what what you love, what you're interested in, because love and interest is just love in action. It's all it is, you know. Interest, mm-hmm. curiosity is just love given given shape, given a direction. Um, I love that. Uh, to to follow that is self acceptance, you know, because you're mm-hmm. accepting that I'm just going to follow my interest without worrying what other people think about it, without worrying about where it's going to go, without worrying about where it's going to take me. Uh, mm-hmm. without worrying about success, I'm just accepting that that's interesting to me and that's good enough. That's enough. Because yeah. the answer to what's interesting to me, what do I love, is always right there. It's always available. And love is the mm-hmm. absolute... I would say it's the antidote to fear, but it would even give make fear... And here's the other thing I would say about fear. I would even say... When I was talking about our guidance system, I would just reinterpret fear as just your guidance system speaking in, a, in language that's saying to you, that's not, don't think that, don't go there, don't, don't, mm-hmm. uh, don't worry. Oh, you're worrying about the future? Mm-hmm. Oh, here's one for you. Here's one for you, Gail and Jeff. I came up with this one, which mm-hmm. is, or I thought about this. Fear, all fear is a story about the future. And all our sense of inadequacy mm. is a story about the past. And love mm. always exists in the present moment. You yeah, bring, I love so, that. So if, if yeah, you're, cause when perfect. we write about, so because memoir is always about the past and usually a feeling of grievance with ourselves or with someone else or with life, right? 
some life is inadequate. So we tell a story about the past, our pain, because mm-hmm. someone did something or we did something or we weren't good enough. And that's our pain. Mm-hmm. All our pain is a story about the past. And all of our fear is a story about the future, even if it's five minutes from now. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got to go on stage mm-hmm. and I got to do this thing. Or what's going to yeah. happen when someone reads my book? Because what other people think of your work, Gail, is always happening in the future. It's not happening now. It's happening in the future. So, right. yeah. All fear is a story about the future. I'd be so interested. I actually have often on our Phyllis writing broadcast, and it's and I want everybody to hear your inestimable wisdom. You always say that writing, and I love this. This is stuck in me. Another struck another very most pure chord when you say that your writing does not belong to you. Its sole purpose is to be shared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really believe that. I think that, you know, it, it, what belongs to you is what changed in you. When you so Gail's talking about her memoir, and I hope I get to interview you when that memoir comes out. That would be awesome. I think we may have already. I think we might have already arranged it. So that's great. So, um, so, uh, so you had the experience of writing it, and the, and you already described quite beautifully the change you went through in writing it. Right? What happened within mm-hmm. you? That's yours. That is yours. Yeah. That belongs solely to you. But the book, that belongs to everybody. And, e- and you have to give it right. away. You give it away because everybody who reads it is going to read a different book. And everybody's going to be changed. Mm-hmm. And the trajectory of the work is, is the reading public. Just like if I hear a song I love, I want to tell people about it. I want to share what I love. I want more of what I love mm-hmm. in the world. Why not? And... And writers are humble people and shy people, and they don't want to admit that they love this story, but you love this memoir you wrote. You love it. You may be a little nervous about it, a little apprehensive, but if you can strip away all that 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 fingernail biting, you love it. That's why you wrote it. You love it. You're glad you wrote it. Yes, I'm trying to remember that, too, that... And the book has already given me everything it needs to give me, and now I just want to focus on what it will give other people. That's right. And, and, and it'll and even give if back I get to you. Bad reviews, yeah. Well, 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 look. Uh, yeah, every every like book will get a bad review. If, yes, but I feel like it, that can't take away what it's given me already. No, and, it can't. And I want to remember that. Yeah. It, it can't. Only you can take that away, and people will <laughs> love it, and they'll come to you. And they'll tell you your story, and so and that sort of garden that you're planting is going to keep growing and growing and growing. I love hearing from readers about the fearless writing, and it's it's so cool mm-hmm. to see it take on a life of its own. It takes on a life of its own. Yeah. I think I don't know if I've ever told the story, Jeff, but uh, uh, that um, I wrote this play once. I was a very young man, and it was a little scene I'd written, and I used to be an actor, and so I would as I was imagining the scene I could picture it in my head and I could hear all the lines being delivered and I thought oh this will be so cool we'll do it this way and this will happen and this the actor will say this and the other actor will say that and I could hear the lines being delivered the way I imagined them being delivered and so one day I finally couldn't bear it anymore I, instead of just pacing around thinking about it I wrote the scene the first scene down at least it was you know 10 pages long I was like oh this is so cool I love it I could it was like a movie running in my head or like a whole play so my brother and my best friend Chris came over and and they're both actors, too. And I said, oh, guys, uh, I got this thing. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's read it. Let's, sit, let's read this thing aloud. And I had never had a piece of mine read aloud, actually, strangely. Uh, I had done some acting, but not my own stuff. I'd written fiction. And so this was a new experience. I was so excited. And I gave each of them their pages. And we started reading. And as soon as we started, something magical happened, which was that Chris and my brother John did not read the lines the way I imagined them to. They brought their own selves to the page, and it changed. And I thought it was the coolest thing I had ever experienced because my life at that point was when my work actually came to life, when it changed in their imagination. So there's the words on the page, and then what happens when it brought into their full self comes to it. It was electric to me because it showed that there's that what I make is bigger than me. It's more than me. It's everybody. It's everybody. It's Gorgeous. <laughs> Thank you so well, that's much for beautiful. And I think I think that's a wonderful place to end too, that idea of just 
our work being bigger than us, but I wonder if there's if there are any last things you want to share, any events you have coming up that you would like to share with our listeners, uh, yeah. or, or any final words of wisdom. Well, quickly, if you're in the Northwest, uh, I will be teaching at um, I will be teaching at the Pacific Northwest Writers uh, Conference. Uh, I'll be teaching Fearless Writing Masterclass, actually, so you can. Uh, you can come and take that class. If you don't want to go to the whole conference, you can take just the class for 50 bucks, which is a deal, I can tell you that. Oh, um, and I'm doing some other stuff. It's actually, you can go to williamcanower.com, and all my uh, upcoming events are, are listed there. So they can go check that out. I do work with people one-on-one if you want to work with me on Fearless Writing. I'm a writing coach. I'm not an editor. I'm a writing coach. So I do work with people one-on-one. But what I would say is, to uh, to your listeners, even if you don't buy the book, just remember um, you don't have to you don't have to care what anybody else thinks about your work. In fact, um, there's a whole chapter on why we have critique groups and why editorial feedback can be useful, and it certainly can. But that's a separate issue. The fact is that your best work always occurs when you forget to care what other people think. And the truth is, in your heart, you actually don't care what anybody else thinks. Not in truth. You love to share it. It's great fun to share it. But your best work, the stuff that moves you and excites you, that comes when you stop thinking about other people and only focus on the thing that you're wanting to share. Eventually, they'll get to have their own experience of it. But all your best work begins when you forget, you forget, forget to worry what other people think. It's not your natural state of being. You've invented it. You've like me and Gail and probably RJ, you trained yourself to. And so writing can teach you to untrain yourself from sitting around wondering and wondering and wondering what other people think and do they like you and are you good enough? You're good enough. You're good enough. Oh, thank you so much. I am so grateful for this conversation, Bill, and all the wisdom that you had to share. Uh, this well, was a wonderful you. conversation. And thank you again to RJ Jeffries for connecting us and producing the show and also um, jumping in with, with his own question. That was a treat. Um, yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and, yes, everyone, um, if you're a writer, this is such a beautiful book, Fearless Writing. You'll find great inspiration in these pages. So I very much look forward to reading more of your work and um, gaining from more of your wisdom. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me on, Gail. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. All right. So again, I'm Gail Brandeis. This has been To Ferret Talk. Please join us again on August 23rd when I'll be talking with the wonderful poet Khadija Kleen. And now, on behalf of Tafara Talk Interviews, here's a brief word from Donna Bear-Stein. She's the founder and publisher of Tafara Journal. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Donna Bear-Stein, founder and publisher of Tafara Journal. We first began to publish authors of different faiths and cultural backgrounds in 2004. I had recently been introduced to the word Tafara, which means heart, compassion, and reconciliation of opposites. Thirteen years after the launch of our magazine, our world finds itself perhaps more divisive than ever. Reconciliation of seeming opposites is key. I truly hope you enjoy these new to Ferret Talk interviews as much as we do. I hope, too, that you will visit our website at toferretjournal.com to subscribe to our quarterly magazine, participate in our writing retreats and community forums, or donate to our mission of promoting tolerance through literature and art. Thank you so much for listening.